Jack, as you know, has taken the month of uh, February for planning and um, to look ahead, and we really covet that time for him. So in his place, uh, we're in currently, as Justin said, in this two-week review of the subject of worship. And last week, we looked at what is worship and who, who it is that we worshiped. And then we looked at the, the key aspects of worship. Um, and uh, Justin, bless him, summarized this really well in his prayer. <laughs> That we looked at, looked at the awe that we have toward God and who he is and what he's done. And then we looked at this idea of obeisance and sort of expanded our vocabulary. We talked about this in our life group, group a little bit this week, you know, that, hey, we're kind of stretching our vocabulary here. But, but the idea of giving worship is giving God the submission and honor and homage that he's due, and it certainly includes obedience and then we, and then the adoration because he loved us and so we can love him and then we offered this definition of worship uh, working definition for us worship is our response of awe and obeisance and adoration to God for who he is and what he has done and then we looked at the who who is this God that we serve and we've looked at God, our creator, the awe that comes with that, God, our king, and the idea of obeisance or homage that we owe, the God, our king, and then God, our father, and the adoration that goes along with it. I asked you to pick up one of these little colored cards and take it home and just journal and, and jot down a time that you had a significant uh, experience of worship this week. Um, and if you didn't, there's a few more out there. If you're in the balcony, there's some down here on the, um, on the ledge here. We ran out uh, this morning before I got up there. Um, and I, I just want to tell you about my experience with a little card. So I'm sitting in the office on uh, Tuesday or Wednesday and starting to get a little frustrated and rail about the California tax code and working on my parents' estate. And uh, Jan walked in and said, what's wrong? And I said, oh, you know, this crazy... California tax code, and as I it was like complaining about to her rel relatively loudly, I looked down and I see this little orange car sitting on my desk, and I said, oh, I'm supposed to be worshiping. <laughs> it's so much more fun being annoyed. Um, but I stopped and it moved my mind. It moved it to a different place. And Friday, actually, in preparation for this, I had to go back and Jan and say, what was it that I was annoyed about? Because <laughs> I'd forgotten, right? So there is something to this idea of worship. If you filled one of these out, I'd love to have it. It just uh, deals with uh, more that we're going to do. The Next Steps uh, station is right in the back here on this side of the aisle and just drop it off when you go out. And if you forgot yours, we'll take it written on whatever you, whatever you have uh, in front of you. But there is something to this idea that, that I'm, I'm made to worship. We sang about this this morning. I'm designed to worship. And if I can learn to worship day by day, moment by moment, and then bring that worship all together as we join together as a, a, a body of believers this morning, there's something significant happens. And so um, we, we, we looked at half of it last week. This week we're going to take a look at the when, the where, and the how of worship. And we'll find that there are actually changes on this as we go through 
scripture, but they're also enduring principles and activities that ought to characterize our worship. And it will necessarily be pretty quick as we go through scripture uh, today, but that's where we're going this morning, and I uh, really appreciate you allowing me to do this and joining me on the way. We're going to start in John chapter 4, where Jesus actually institutes a new uh, way of worship. And a little background, you can turn your Bibles to John chapter 4 if you want to now. A little background, the encounter Jesus is moving from Jerusalem up to Galilee because of the growing attention that his a ministry had among the Pharisees and it was just getting too, you know, a little bit too tense. And he said, you know, I'm just going to withdraw to Galilee for a while. And he had to go through Samaria. So if you walk, if you go north from Jerusalem, even today to Galilee, there's one road and it goes right through uh, Samaria. And that's the road that Jesus took. And they arrived at Jacob's well. It's a, it's a well outside of modern day um, Nablus or Shechem, the, the city's right there in the middle of the northern part of uh, what's now the West Bank. And, and he sits down, he arrives about noon, and he sits down, and the disciples go into the city to find something to eat. And so Jesus is alone at the well, and he's approached by this solitary Samaritan woman coming to the well at noon. And she, this is a little weird, you know, having him sit there. And then Jesus actually strikes up a conversation with her, which is even a little bit more weird that this, this Jewish man would have a conversation with a Samaritan woman. And, and uh, Jesus took the physical need that he had for water and turned it into a spiritual conversation with this woman about the state of her, uh, about her spiritual state. And so they've had this conversation about water and the spiritual water that Jesus can provide as Lord. And we're going to pick up the, uh, the story in verse 16. And if you want to stand with me as we read this part of Scripture this morning, um, we'll just see what Jesus had to say. So they've had this conversation. Then Jesus said, go, call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, what you're saying, you're right in what you're saying. I have no husband. Uh, for you have had five husbands, and the one you, you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. And then the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, you've changed the subject. No, that's what Murphy would have said. That's not what Jesus said. Fortunately, because what's coming is very significant. Jesus said, woman, believe me, that the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You will worship, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here that true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. And the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. He is called Christ. And when, Jesus, and when he comes, he will teach us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Please, please have a seat. 
Let's, let's just pray, shall we? Father, we are, uh, again, just uh, moved by the opportunity to worship you and to learn a little bit this morning about, or remind ourselves this morning about worship and, and um, how we should bring our worship to you and how we are privileged to bring our worship to you in these days. And these words of yours as, that you have preserved for us all that down through the centuries are so crucial and God help us to get them right and help us to understand correctly who you are and what you want from us is when we gather to worship and we ask it in Jesus name. Amen. So what do we find here in uh, John chapter 4? Well, first we find uh, Jesus again in the middle of this spiritual conversation with a woman, and he asks this simple question, go get your husband, and she gives a less than complete answer, and Jesus, demonstrating his omniscience, says, yeah, you're exactly right, you don't have a husband. You've had five, and the one that you're living with now is not your husband. So you can imagine how the woman might have reacted to this, this just stranger at the well, telling her exactly what her past and her current is, and so indeed she changes the subject, and she goes, well, let's, let's talk theology, since uh, that last line of conversation is not working out too well. And so she brings up this dispute over um, uh, where to worship, and the Samaritans had a big temple on top of Mount Gerizim, you can still find the, the, the um, uh, ruins of it today uh, on top of Mount Gerizim that had been destroyed actually a, almost a century before Jesus and the woman are having this conversation. And Jacob's well is just down the hill, just to the left of the hill there. So Jesus and this woman are sitting right at the bottom of this hill. And she says, hey, we think that this is the right place to worship. And you think... That temple in Jerusalem, this is Herod's temple, is the right place to worship. Um, you know, let's talk about this. And it's an honest question. She is changing the subject, but it's an honest question about worship. And Jesus actually accepts the change of subject, unlike I would have, which is why he's Jesus and I'm not, which is we all should be thankful for that, right? Um, and he goes with the change of subject. And he has this wonderful, rich, and deep statement on worship. First of all, there's a time coming and now is. How significant is that? Something is happening right now as we sit here at Jacob's Well. And the place no longer matters. There's something changing in worship. It doesn't matter whether it's up there or in Jerusalem. It's going to change. And then Jesus goes on to say, worship is rooted in knowledge. And we, we know, we worship what we know because we know where salvation comes from. And he says, true worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth. So we know that worship is a spiritual activity and it's directed by God who is himself spirit. And we can't possibly hope to do this without being spiritually reborn. And worship must be in truth, worshiping God, the true God, in the way that God desires us to worship and in the way that he has revealed himself. And then we, then we get this, and we sang about this this morning too, um, this amazing statement that the Father is actually out seeking worshipers to do this. 
He's pursuing us. He wants worshipers that will worship in this way. And then just to make sure that the woman got it, he, re, he repeats himself and says, God is spirit and those who worship must worship in spirit and in truth. And the woman's reaction is a good reaction. Well, you know, we, we know that when the Messiah comes, he's going to teach us all things. And then this is kind of, this ought to make you the hair stand up on your neck a little bit. Jesus says to her, yes, I, the one whom sitting here with you speaking to you, I'm that Messiah. Wow. <laughs> wow. So summary, there's a new way to worship God happening, and it's not dependent on place or ritual or routine, and further, it's rooted in the knowledge of God and our relationship with him that he is pursuing and wants us to pursue. It needs to happen in spirit and in truth, and it is aimed squarely at worshiping God through his son, the Messiah. So there's something going on here. There's some major change happening right here. Well, what is it? We're going to have to go look at a little backstory here. And to do this, and it's, again, necessarily going to have to be very brief uh, overview. We're going to do more of this uh, probably this fall as we look into this uh, subject as part of our Ridge class. Um, but, but we're going to go back. We're going to go all the way back to the, to the front of the Bible and just kind of look at the story of worship and how does it happen and, and how does worship work. And so if you flip back to Genesis chapter 1, through me, uh, with me, and, and uh, you know, admittedly, we have to be a little careful here. God does not reveal a whole lot about uh, Genesis or about the Garden of Eden and what happened at the beginning of the world, but from what he has revealed, I think we can draw some good assumptions and conclusions about what worship must have looked like before the fall. And I'll pick it up in verse uh, 27 of uh, chapter 1. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And, he ble and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and every other living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with its seed in its fruit, and you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I've given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was the evening and the morning, the sixth day. So what do we find here about worship? And, and in uh, some following verses that I'll just reference, we don't have time to read them all this morning, but you're very uh, skilled people and you can pick up some of this at home. So first we find that the, a, a holy mission that God gives Adam and Eve here, he creates them and then he says, now go take care of this creation that I have, join with me in my creative activity. Fill the earth and subdue it and take dominion over it and improve it and grow it. And so God has given us this, this, this mission or this task and it's work. You know, our work is actually holy. God gave us work to do and it's before the fall. It has nothing to do with sin. God gave us work to join with him in his 
creative, creative activity and, and, uh, uh, and continuing that work, not from nothing, as Tom was talking about this morning, but we can create and grow and, and uh, improve things. So, you know, we don't have time to hear, go here this morning, but one thing you might think about this week is, do I look at my work as worship? Do I look at when I go into that place or, or whether it's at home or wherever it is, and when I'm talking about work, I'm not talking about paid work. I'm talking that everybody is occupied with something during the day that takes up your time uh, and, uh, and the, work, the, the things that you do every day. And so do I look at that as worship, as something that I'm offering uh, up to God. And then secondly, the first part of chapter 2, God creates a holy day. He creates the Sabbath, and he invites uh, Adam and Eve to join him in, in um, uh, resting from work and making that day holy. And then third, he gives a holy command, and it's only a single command. So he, he plants Adam in the garden, and he says, here, take care of it, and and worship, I mean, uh, work it uh, with me. And then he gives them one single command. Don't eat of this tree. That's all. That's all you need to worry about. Eat of everything else you want. Enjoy yourself. Work and, you know, love the life that you live, but don't eat of that tree. It appears chronologically, actually, before God created Eve. And so there's some sense of uh, responsibility here for Adam to pass this on to Eve and then four, we find a holy relationship at the end of chapter two where God brings Adam and Eve together and two become one flesh in the covenant, what we, we now call marriage. And they're, they're both naked and they're not ashamed. And so you have this beautiful um, picture of God and Adam and Eve walking you know, through the garden and working and enjoying life and and appreciating all that God has made and provided for them uh, to do the work that he's giving them. And then actually in, the, in chapter 3 when we read about post-fall, we can get another little glimpse that God is walking in the garden in the cool of the evening and Adam and Eve aren't there and this is new. This is new because before Adam and Eve were always there and they were, they were together in God's presence and God says, where are you? And they're hiding um, and so you get the sense of this, this perfect communion between the creator and his creation, enjoying all of the rest of his creation, uh, moment by moment, doing the work that they have been given by God and enjoying his presence as they uh, celebrate uh, life together, celebrate a special holy day and celebrate this relationship that he has given with them with each other. This is awe and obeisance and adoration in the very presence of their creator. But of course, it didn't stay that way, did it? Um, because sin entered the world because they, uh, Adam and Eve both disobeyed that one single command, don't eat of this tree. And sin destroyed it all. So God's presence is no longer, God, they are no longer able to stay in God's presence. Um, the, the, the holiness of work turns into a, some drudgery and difficulty and hardship as, as I work. There's, there's enmity between man and wife and the marriage covenant becomes 
difficult and harder and the willing and obedience and submission to God gets broken because of our rebellion. And note how the temptation and sin directly challenged and challenged still our worship of God. Satan comes to them and says, did God actually say this? And so Satan is undermining their awe of God and who he is. And then he said, well, you know, you won't really die because God knows that you're, this, this uh, uh, tree will make you wise. And so he's undermining the obeisance and the obedience of God and the submission and honor that they uh, owe him. And then Eve looks at the tree and sees that it was good and a delight to the eyes and desired to make one wise. And, it, and she herself undermines the adoration of God as she begins to turn her attention and her worship to the created thing rather than the creator. And I, I think if you sit down and think through any sin that you struggle with now, you can find somewhere in that the undermining of, of the awe of God or the, the, the uh, submission, honor, the uh, homage that you owe him or the adoration of God. So the effects of that destruction are very, very uh, noticeable immediately because Adam and Eve have to leave the garden. And it's, it, it's also very noticeable as we go on into the new, uh, sorry, the Old Testament and think about how did people worship God. And we, we find, this is again just a very brief summary, but if you go to Exodus chapter 19 and 20, you find Israel coming to the foot of Mount Sinai to be taught how to worship the Lord. And it's so fearful, they can't even go and touch the, the bottom of the mountain lest they die. And God's words become mediated through prophets and uh, priests. And the, the people actually tell Moses at this time, look, you, you go to speak to God and you speak through to us because if God speaks directly to us, we'll die. That's how scary it was to be close to the presence of God. And so God becomes approachable only at his dwelling place, the tabernacle, or later the temple. And in Leviticus uh, 23 kind of spells out this whole ritual of uh, sacrifices daily, weekly, and annual, the seven feast days and three times that all the community have to join themselves together um, in Jerusalem uh, later on in Jerusalem to, uh, to bring their worship to God. And there's only one person that can actually enter the presence of God in the Holy of Holies, and that's the high priest, and that only once per year. Now, instead of a single command, there's 613 commands as part of the law that the people have to keep up with. And so everything is changed Instead of being close and being in the presence of God and enjoying that presence and enjoying his creation, they're far off and they want God to stay over there. And, um, you know, there's this, there's this sense of deep separation. You know, God's in the tabernacle or the temple and it's over there and it's good that he's staying there. It's a very sad statement. We find activities of worship as we... Uh, look through um, Leviticus chapter 8, where, um, where uh, Moses is consecrating Aaron and his sons to the priesthood. There's, a, there's an, uh, an episode of worship that, that it talks about how they did it. And then in 
um, Second uh, Kings chapter eight, Solomon is consecrating the temple and they, and he brings the whole nation together for worship. And then in um, Nehemiah chapter eight, Ezra is joining all the 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 people that have come back from captivity into into a time of a special time of worship. And as we look through all these, we can see the activities. There's sacrifices. There's tithes and offerings. There's reading of the law. There's congregational confession and prayer. There's certainly singers and munitions. There's a whole chapter in First uh, Chronicles 25 that that talks about the the how David, you know, organized and and um, uh, treated the singers and the munitions that served God. And then there, of course there are feasts. But you get the sense of the great change from Genesis chapter one and two to the rest of the Old Testament. And then we get back to John chapter four. Something is changing. Something very significant is changing. And if you, um, if you flip over to uh, Ephesians chapter two, we can get a sense for what it is that has changed. And this is Paul's um, uh, writing to uh, the church at Corinth. And here's what he says starting in, uh, verse 12, and we'll read down to 22. Remember that you are at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us, made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinance that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So what's happened? Everything has changed. Instead of being far off, we're brought near. You know, Hebrews chapter 4 says, let us boldly approach the throne of God that we might have grace to help in, in time of need. We can come into God's presence again because of what Christ has done for us. We are, our body becomes the temple of Christ and our, our, communi our communal body as this church in, in uh, Percival and the church in the world becomes the temple of God. Um, the, the, he, God is present with us through the spirit anytime, anywhere, every day, um, very close. You get a sense that we're moving back to the way that God created and desires us to be. And replacing all of those 613 commandments, there's just two 
Mark chapter 12, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. If you do those things, all of those 613 commandments will be fulfilled. But there's, so this is, you know, it's really hard for us to underestimate how great a change this is. This is such a significant change that we can worship God in this way in any place where we find ourselves that is, is an adequate and a good place to worship God. But we also find a, a bit of a continuity in activity in Acts chapter 2 Verses 42 to 47 talks about a little bit about what the church did. They, they, they paid attention to the apostles' teaching and fellowship and breaking of the bread. And later on, we talk about the Lord's Supper. So there still is this sense of feasting together and praying and certainly singing. You know, Jesus and his disciples sang a hymn and they, and they went out. And, uh, you know, there's one particular elder that won't let us leave <laughs> an elders meeting without singing a hymn before we go out. And so singing is part of our worship and we certainly are still giving both to the needy from Matthew chapter six and certainly to God's work that you can find in 2 Corinthians nine. So the, the activity stays relatively uh, continuous and the continuity is the same, but the environment and the, the privilege that we have to do this now in God's presence is so different. And then just very briefly, uh, going to the last two chapters of the Bible, Revelation 21 and 22, and I, I just want to give, to give you a sense for what worship might look like in the future when we're in God's presence. And I'm going to pick up the first of um, chapter 21 and read a few um, uh, a few uh, pieces of 21 and 22. And this is, what, uh, this is what John says through the revelation of God. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming up out of heaven, for, uh, the heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for, his, for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be any mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he was sitting on the throne said, behold, I'm making all things new. And he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, I, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake of fire uh, that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. And then skipping down to verse 22, and I saw no temple in this city for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives its light and its lamp is the Lamb. And, uh, and by its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring 
their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They'll bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will enter into it, anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. And then finally, the first part of chapter 22. And the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bringing a brightest crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his names will be on his foreheads, and night will be no more. They will have no need of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. There's a beautiful symmetry between the first two chapters of the Bible and the last two chapters, aren't there? You see, because God seeks worshipers, and he wants us to come into his presence and enjoy that that relationship and that and the presence as we worship his him as our creator and our king and our father as we love him as we submit to him and as we hold him in awe because of who he is we were there once we're going to be there again and what is so significant is that we're we're most of the way back because of the the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We're able to come into his presence now. We're able to worship him. We're able to worship well. Well, so what? You know, how should we live based on what we now know? So first of all, just a couple of really quick comments. Worship is our purpose. It's why we exist. We sang about this this morning, and I hope you picked up on that. I'm designed to worship. I am I am designed to be a worshiper. Romans 12, 1 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable God, which is your spiritual worship. Because he is our creator and our king and our father. And then secondly, worship is much less about what we do, the activities, what we do, and much greater about what's in our hearts. And Jesus accused the Pharisees of this. And quoting Isaiah in Matthew 15, he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrines the commandments of men. See, God's, God's not impressed by us showing up on Sunday morning and going through the motions here. He wants our hearts. And he wants our hearts on Sunday. And he wants our hearts on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday because he is worthy of our worship. Well, Tom, if you want to bring the, uh, the band up, we're going to close now. But when, as we do, I want to just give you one more little tool um, for uh, reminding yourself that I'm built to worship and I should be worshiping God day to day and point, you know, uh, moment by moment. And here's an idea. Pick a door or two in your life and make it your worship door, okay? That when I go through that door, I know that I'm going out to worship or I am coming in 
to worship. So it could be your bedroom door as you walk through in the morning and say, I, you know, I'm leaving here to start my day, and my day is built around worship of God. It can be the door of your house as you leave for the day. I'm going out into the world to worship God. Or perhaps as you come home at night, and I'm coming in to join with my family in worship of God. Or it could be the door of an office or school or a place where you work, that I'm going in here, and this is my job to worship God where I am. It certainly can be these doors on Sunday morning as we come through to remind ourselves when we walk through the door, we are here to worship. Or it could be these doors on Sunday at noon when we walk out to say we are going out to worship God and to make him known for the people. Whatever you do to remind yourself or to get your own attention, we ought to be worshipers and we ought to be we ought to worship well in the, uh, in the day-to-day, moment-by-moment time that we have here on earth.